Hello, and welcome to Survivor Stories. My name is Jacob Little, and I've created this podcast for survivors. When I say survivors, I mean survivors of child abuse, survivors of addiction, survivors of the prison system, survivors of domestic violence, survivors of institutional child abuse. I'd like to give a trigger warning. This podcast will be real and raw as fuck. We will be interviewing survivors and also services that are helping survivors on their journey. Having lived experience of institutional child abuse and the prison system, I encourage all survivors to speak up. Hey mate, how you going? Hey buddy, thanks for thanks for having me on today, man. I'm looking forward to it. No, I appreciate it, man. And um, you know, this is probably the first person. Ed, actually, it is the first person, first interview. So I'm pretty wrapped to have you on here, brother. Thank you so much, mate. I appreciate it. And, and and before we even get started, man, hats off to you for all the work you're doing and all the uh, people you represent out there, man. Because it's a it's a well needed voice and and hats off and 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 hand on heart. You you're changing lives and it's something that's needed. So uh, all 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 credit to you, my brother. Yeah, thanks, mate. And just so you know, um, wherever you're tuning in from, um, Lucas is actually on the other side of Australia, which is a it's a pretty pretty long way away. How long is it to get over there from here, mate? Is it a two day drive or something? Sure, mate. You better add some more days to that. It's a <laughs> it's a it's a three hour three or four hour flight depending upon it. But I'm a Victorian originally, and when I got on the plane, um, my best mate over here told me that you don't get on a plane, you get on a time machine, and WA stands for wait a while. And you get over here and it's it's been great during COVID because we haven't had we have had hardly anything. I think we had to go into quarantine for a few weeks and that was it. And, you know, I didn't lose a paycheck, didn't lose a day of work. My kids, I think we're at, at home schooled for maybe five or six weeks max. So we've been really lucky. Yeah, that's good, mate. That's good. And um so so whereabouts are you you're in Western Australia, you're in Perth or Yeah, I live in um well, I'm south south of Perth, so there's uh, two sort of major regional cities, Mandra and Rockingham, and we're in between them. So probably probably 45 minutes south of uh, south of the centre of Perth. Yeah, cool, mate. Cool. Well, uh, I guess I got you on the podcast to sort of learn a bit about you and what you've been through. Um, being this is survivor stories, anyone who's been through the system, who suffered abuse or any um, traumas or things like that. So I just want to pretty much start off with how you grew up, mate. Where where you've grew up and where you're from and all that. <clears throat> all right, I'm a um, I'm a Victorian born and bred. So I was a was born in Dandenong, which is about sort of probably 35 minutes or 40 minutes sort of south of of, of um, you know uh, main city Melbourne. Um, was born to you know a sort of relatively probably lower lower socioeconomic family, maybe middle to lower. Um, dad was self-employed. Mum was a stay-home parent. Um, you know, just a regular sort of childhood initially. Um, then sort of once, I think maybe when I got to understand things a little bit more, started to, I suppose, see domestic violence um, and sort of alcoholism and probably um, some real sort of misogynistic sort of stuff come through from my dad. And yeah. that probably, and from sort of you know, reflecting and looking back is that I probably... at the time I I didn't know what it was I didn't understand it I didn't know what it meant didn't you know and I wasn't sure what that was all about but you know as we sort of got a bit older and you sort of got to you know 10 11 12 and you know you you have to yourself you know try and 
fend your fend your dad off from you know thrashing your mom, or you have to you know eventually as a twelve year old go and ask your dad to leave the house and not come back again um, is a is a pretty pretty daunting thing. Um, I mean, I was always lucky that you know my mum always worked really hard to make sure that we we didn't go without. But you know, you look back now as a as a guy that's grown up and. And there was some sacrifices, you know, we, we, we still got to play sport. We still got to do our things, but I look back now and, and, and just think, and, and, and I think it's shaped me a little bit um, to be honest, brother, because I saw some of the stuff my dad did um, then and even after and, and post and sort of thought that that wasn't the man I wanted to be. And that's not what I want my kids to be. And um, I swore black and blue from that instance that I would never lift my hand to a female um, have worked really hard in that space, you know, through representing white ribbon through, um, you know, even some of my doctorate stuff was on, you know, adolescent girls drop out in sport and equal opportunities for females. And yeah. I think that's, I think that's probably shaped that a little bit, but man, I had a pretty, pretty run of the mill single parent life. I mean, we stayed in the house we were born in mum and dad worked that out. Um, you know, we played cricket, football, basketball, um, I wasn't super intelligent, but I was never, I was never stupid, but I wasn't stupidly intelligent. I always had the ability to, to speak. And I, I look back and think, man, that it probably was, I had to, I had to hide my deficiencies. I had to hide my, um, probably self-esteem challenges that I still have now, but I had to hide some of them. And I think that taught me how to put on a bravado and, um, a lot of the guys we work with and a lot of the guys I speak to, which I'll get onto about later, but they have a similar story is that they have to work coping mechanisms to try and protect away the, the lack of self-esteem or the lack of self-belief or the lack of, you know, um, ability to, to, to succeed in things that they might have. And I, I struggle from that still to this day, man, as a 40, what am I now? 43 year old guy. And, and I try and hide it and people I speak to don't get it. They don't, you know, they don't see it but I'm a classic introvert and I think those skills came and developed because of the, the shitty stuff you get to see and, and experience when you're young. Yeah, mate. It sounds like you had an interesting childhood and um, yeah, I wasn't aware that, you know, you had to go through that domestic violence and alcoholism, mate. That's it's a rough time, you know, can relate to that a lot in, in myself. So, yeah, mate. Um, so, so what was it like when you sort of you sort of grew up where you finished high school and then you, did you go to university or did you get straight into well, I was probably lucky. Um, I, I was was an ordinary, when I say ordinary, I was an acceptable sportsman. I'm not going to say I was any good at any level, but I fell into basketball coaching really early. Um, yep. And <clears throat> bas- basketball coaching for me and sport became my vehicle to try and get away from that sort of lower socioeconomic existence. Also the existence where education wasn't going to be the real way out for me. And yeah. Um, so I started coaching and, and was lucky enough to get brought along by a couple of really quality, um, really quality coaches um, that, that gave me an opportunity. And there's a gentleman named Steve Barr. Steve had some issues himself down the track, but he was someone that gave me an opportunity when I was coaching and you know, took me under his wing a little bit. And I was lucky enough to be assistant coaching or, or apprentice coaching at the WNBL, the Women's National Basketball League, when I was in year 12. And oh, yeah. that, that, that for me gave me the ability to not only do some education stuff and finishing off your 12, but to also have something to put it into. And I sort of thought, all right, I was focusing a lot on basketball, didn't get the marks I needed to get into uni. So I went the, uh, I went the, uh, the back door entrance and went in through TAFE. I did a year of TAFE, 
hated it in marketing at uh, Berwick for anyone that's a Victorian listener and got some decent marks without being good, then applied for, uh, for teaching at uni um, and got into teaching at, uh, at RMIT, which was a, a big trek away. Um, started doing that, did a year there and then transferred to Deakin, which was closer um, closer to me. And um, yeah, but throughout that whole time I was coaching and sport for me became my ability to hide my lack of um, academic skills and my lack of skills in education because yeah, I could shoot a basketball, I could bowl a cricket ball, I could, you know, uh, mark a footy, whatever, but I wasn't great in the classroom. I was school captain because I could talk, um, but um, the uni stuff let me, let me, I suppose, formalize that space. And then I just fell in love with, with helping other people and, um, and using my experiences, good, bad, and indifferent to try and help others. And that was both on the sporting field um, and also coaching, but also then as a teacher and um, had a little bit of a, little bit of a, a, a not a blip in the middle we won I was coaching a, a team junior team we won Australian championships over here in Perth funnily enough and a couple of weeks after got offered a position over here in Perth so I put my teaching degree on hold moved over here and had my first experience of Western Australia and I uh, worked with the Perth Wildcats um, and the Perth Lynx um, and did a lot of work with them over here and then um, you know the, the, the way the story goes move states, find girl, settle down with girl, break up with girl, move back to Victoria again. Yeah. And came back, finished my degree in Victoria and then started teaching. Had a, again, someone through basketball gave me my first teaching opportunity once I finished yeah. my degree. Um, I was working at a, a Jewish school in, in Victoria um, and then got into the primary, primary schools, um, a couple of primary schools and taught there. And then um, I've been involved as a school teacher for a, a long time and educated, did my master's, did a master's of coach education through the University of Sydney. Um, and then I started my doctorate. Um, I started my PhD in education because I just wanted to get something I promised my nana when I was younger is I would be the first one to go to uni in our family and I would be, I would go as far as I could. And I've stuck to my word for my grandma. And yeah, um, yeah so that's, that's my teaching. That's my teaching world, man. And um yeah, so then, oh, Jesus, man, cut me off if you want to stop me. But then went from teaching, got offered an opportunity or applied for and got offered an opportunity with the local government in, um, in Victoria in, in sport management um, and took that position and in, in regional Victoria and was traveling a fairly long distance from one space to another. Um, had, a, had a pretty decent job, got promoted pretty quickly through sort of, you know, the, the, the coordinator level to manager level to sort of that sort of space and yeah and was operating a pretty was operating a really good team a good budget we were building um we built an afl stadium for a sports club we you know replaced pools we we built um you know we did um strategic work we built parks we over redid um a whole lot of stuff with with, with running a really big uh budget and yeah. i unfortunately unfortunately made um a, a common mistake in in that space and a common um, I took a shortcut. Um, I was myself, and my wife were living outside our means. Um, and we were probably had, you know, we, yeah, you know, you got the new car or got the new holiday and these type of things. And, and I, in my infinite wisdom to try and make sure that I protected my kids from things, um, had the opportunity to, uh, get some kickbacks from a few of the contracts that I'd given for legitimate work. Um, 
but to people that I knew. And I'd received some payments back from those people and it was completely wrong and I owned it and own it still to this day. Um, I put short-term ability to try and not take money out of my own family's account to do the things that we were trying to do. Um, and I took a, I took a, a cheat shortcut. Um, I severely hurt family members. I severely hurt um, you know, a lot of really good people that I worked with the city of Ballarat still that I don't, haven't spoken to today. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I will get to apologizing to those guys and contacting them, but it's just, I'm not there yet. Um, I'm not there yet in myself, but I screwed up, went away and served the time, went away and did a, I got a three year stint. I went away and did a one year and then was eligible for parole and have transferred my parole over to, from Victoria to Western Australia when I was released. So that's the end of that story. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and so, so you committed that crime obviously, and, um, were, were you put in a position or what made you think that, um, you, you wanted to do that? Like, was it, was it like, fuck, I'll just make a quick earn or, you know, I'll just want to, was it for your mates or you just thinking? Probably a combination of, probably a combination of a few of those things. I think the first one was, is that, um, there was a, there was a fair bit of, I was studying my doctorate at the time. So there's a fair bit of, um, you know, gathering of international stuff. And, and I always wanted to be, and I've always had a, a character flaw that I always wanted to be the best that I could be at anything I was doing. And I say character flaw because some people in the world don't like that. They find that challenging that people have that. And I want to remain at the forefront. So for me, that was going over and seeing what they were doing in America in sport and recreation. That was going yeah. to explore you know, going to the new Yankee Stadium and seeing what land issues they had and what dealing with playgrounds and building sporting facilities and these type of things. And I just had this passion for that space. And instead of, because we were living a stretched life, you know, we bought a second house, you know, we had, you know, new cars, these sort of things, it was a good job. And in my twisted mind, I look back at now, I was like, you know what, I don't want to take food out of my kids' mouths to do what I was trying to do as a person. And I've always had, um, Jacob, you know, um, you know I, I feel a little embarrassed when I say this, but I've always had a, an issue of, um, of wanting everyone to like me and always and wanting everyone to, um, to, to appreciate me and to respect me. And um, I still have this to, the, to that day. And I look back at it and I think it was something that spawned probably from my relationship with my father. But um, I look at it now and, 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 and part of that was it, you know, I could see some key guys that I knew and knew well that could do some quality work, quality work and spoke to them and said, hey, how much would it cost for this type of work to be done? And I would say to them, okay, this is the budget we've got. And then it worked out one conversation, wasn't even thinking about it. One conversation, one of the guys said, hey, you know what, I'll, I'll look after you with this. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. No worries, whatever, whatever that meant. And what it meant was, was it was a couple of dollars. And I sort of looked at it and thought, you know what, that just um, that just helped me then not have to take money out of our own bank account to pay for the things that I was doing work-wise and study-wise. I could do it again. And then I could do it again. And I could do it again. And then by the other times, and again, this is a, a case of, you know, you still got to be careful when you say this, but it, it was it wasn't just happening we in my department it was it was seen in other spaces and in my twisted mind at that time is i felt like i was doing a favor for my mates because they were getting the opportunity to get some extra income 
I was doing a favor for my family. This is a twisted mind I'm saying when I'm telling you this, Jacob. Like I'm, I was seeing it as, I was seeing as that I was doing everyone a solid because I was getting work done quick. I was getting work done fast and at high level qualities, you know, to meet the needs of the requirements of my job. Um, I was not having to take money out of our own account to go and do the stuff I was doing. And my mates were getting some opportunities to work too. And I'm like, man, I've got all these extra mates. Of these guys like me, you know, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And I was killing myself, man. Like I was killing myself. And I was in such a bad space, bad space mentally at that point. And I don't think I haven't even told my wife this um, is I used to drive home the hour, hour and a half drive home every day. And I'd have a, a four or six pack of Southern comfort and Coke and a bag of chips every night. And I spotted the tree that I was going to run into because I didn't like the person that I'd become. I didn't like what I was doing and I didn't like what, um, what this, what these lies had turned me into. It turned me into someone that was hiding shit that, I could, I wasn't mentally capable of doing, man. Like this is a, mate, I'm a pretty simple, pretty simple, trusting, open guy that, that wears his heart on his sleeve that has just, you know, has just, just worked out a way that he thought was, was going to, you know, make him a rock star, get a few extra bucks in his pocket, have his mates love him and his bosses love him. And, you know, I, it, it, it was wrong and it was wrong. And when it was found out, it, I said it was, and, Pleaded guilty, took my hit, and still to this day, tell the story and own the story because I fucked up and I own it. But the one thing I won't let happen is I won't let someone else own my narrative. I won't let someone else say that, yeah, he's a bad guy. Yeah, he was a crook. Yeah, he was this. Yeah, he was that. Every person commits something because of a context behind it. And that's good, bad, and indifference. And the context was that I honestly believed at the time that I was benefiting my friends and my family and that I was attempting to get myself out of a position and my family out of a position that we had got ourselves into and deranged thinking at the time, but that's what the context was to that space at that time. Yeah. Well, brother, everyone makes mistakes. You know what I mean? I've fucking made heaps, but as long as you're trying to move forward and stay positive and you're doing good things in the community now. So, um, you, I can, I can relate to heaps of things you're saying there again, you know, like, yeah, wow, that's, that's, can't believe you said them things, man, about yourself. That must make you feel a little bit uncomfortable to say hey, them things, you know, brother. Got to know yourself. Yeah. You got to know yourself. And, and, and I encourage guys that I work with to have those uncomfortable conversations. And, you know, if you can own you a little bit and get to know yourself a little bit more, I think that's a key thing. And I now am lucky enough. And I got to meet you, Jacob, which has been one of the great things of, of, of this year. And I say that not blowing smoke in your ass. I legitimately mean that. And, um, you know, we, we, I do a lot of, I'm trying to do some research now um, and doing a lot of research in education for guys that are incarcerated. Um, we've got like four papers coming out in the next few months with international guys. So I've built a good relationship with convict criminology um, guys in the U S and the UK. And I've got a paper coming out with the founders of, of you, of the UK convict criminology group about the barriers to setting up in Australia. Um, we're now doing a community radio show, which you've been a guest on. If you ever get a chance, listen to the great Jacob Little talk on Talking Time on Inspire yeah. Radio. He was was phenomenal. And we do that, brother, because it's about lived experience. It's about getting people in the door to come and tell us their story is that it doesn't, I, I don't care what you did or what you didn't do. If you own your shit, you own your shit. Everyone's allowed to fuck up sometime. Yeah. But to, to me as a teacher, to me as an educator and to me, you know, now is to have someone that that's done that is 
if you come away from doing something wrong and you haven't learned something from it, you're a fucking idiot. Yeah, and, exactly and, right, and, that, and, and that could be good, bad, and indifferent. You know, if you come away from doing something that was terrible and you walk away and say, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I hurt that person. Yeah, I took that wallet. Yeah, I broke into that car. Yeah, I sold those drugs. If you can put a context and a rationale behind it and understand yourself and accept yourself and stop hating yourself for fucking up, then that's one of your first steps towards actually becoming a positive person back in the States. And that's why we do this radio show, man, because I want to give the voice to not only um, uni practitioners and uni guys from all over the world, but man, we've had, we've, we've got people now, Jacob, listening in eight different countries. We've just hit Spotify for God's sake as a community radio show. That's like good. this is, there's a reason that this is working and I'm trying man i work with at-risk kids now um and and unfortunately for me some of those um some of those black marks on my personality and black marks of the things i've done previously do pop up and bite me in the ass sometimes um you know with that with that lack of self-belief or that lack of self-respect and and something that a lot of guys would would be able to understand is that you you work and you do stuff and there's a an email that comes through or a phone call that comes through and you're looking at it thinking oh shit are they going to sack me? Oh shit! Are they going to? Have they? Do they? Have they just decided all of a sudden they don't want someone with a criminal record working for them? You know, so that self doubt keeps uh, manifesting and, and and growing in the back of your head. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that for sure. You don't want to get some some message like that to wreck your day. But um, mate, what what was it like for you um when you got pinched? Like, how did you get pinched? Um. So um. So I we were in a position where I was a manager of a, a pretty, pretty high functioning team. And um, we took over a, a large facility. Um, and because of the taking over the large facility, it was a quick turnover, a quick contract turnover. And I had to go in effectively as the manager. So I moved aside from my position and um, stepped, someone else stepped into my position to, to take the, the, the role in the in local government. It's called a secondment. So he, so Connor kind of stepped into that position and he noticed some irregularities. Um, and instead of coming to the irregularity and coming to me and asking about the irregularities, which, which, which I don't blame that I don't blame those people for. Um, they saw some irregularities and went and took it to the, um, took it to some management and then management obviously took it to the uh, anti-corruption council in, in Victoria, which is called IBAC. Um, and one day man sitting at home, I'd moved on to the next job. Um, I'd left, um, you know, it was, it was sort of disgusting to me and, and I put it forward that this stuff wasn't going away. And, and my previous bosses had said that, you know, you got the opportunity to move, move on why this happens. And I was like, yep, that's cool. I, I own it. I'm not going to, not going to pretend I'm not going to fake it and stepped aside. So I got a, got a position, a different position in, in sport and recreation and education and, and took that up and effectively, and this is probably the thing that also exacerbated my own mental health challenges is we had to wait for three years for this story to happen from the minute we knew um, from the minute we knew that this was was on from the minute we knew that, that, that this case was happening, that this was going on, it was three years to the day before we were even went to court. So for me, it was every phone call I had brother, every time there'd be a knock on the door, every time I'd send a text message to my wife and I didn't hear back from her in like 10 minutes, I was thinking like, shit, are these guys not, are these guys at my house right now? Are these guys asking questions? Are they, what are they doing? What are they doing? What are they doing? Because um, it was that self, self, 
you know, it was that self-doubt and that, that anxiety with everything. And man, there'd be days and nights, brother, where I'd go to work and, and lay on the floor in my office and cry yeah. because I, di- I didn't know when this call was coming. I didn't know when, <laughs> yeah. when this, when this yank was going to take place and how bad it was going to be. Um, you know, because unfortunately media, media were involved in, in some of this stuff and media didn't quite, didn't quite paint the story that it actually was uh, media in their attempt to, to sell, um, you know, sell some more papers or to do some sort of sensationalizing. There was some, we'll just say there was some mayonnaise put on the, uh, put on the, uh, put on the sandwich and it made things significantly worse. And then when we were first charged, so I was charged on <laughs> two days before Christmas. Um, Excellent two days time of the year Christmas. to be charged. And deliberately, uh, you know, you, I find out afterwards in speaking to some of the people that, that were involved is that that was done deliberately for media coverage, for media maximization in, in a small country town. And so that, that occurred and effectively blew up Christmas and effectively was unemployed from that minute. Um, I had a little bit of an idea that you know, I obviously knew this was coming. So I started a second job months before that. So to at least make sure that um, I would have some income for my family. It was a night, a night job, funnily enough, as a, a PhD holder, a night job um, making sausages at the, local, uh, at the local warehouse because, man, I don't care if I have to shovel someone else's shit. As long as my kids get to do what they do and they have a feed, feed on the table is, mate, I'd sell myself for it. And um, so, yeah, went from there, man. Got, uh, had, uh, you know, as overkill can be, is, you know, for a, for a white collar offence, we had... Um, the, uh, the, the police, or not police, but the uh, IBAC officers close our street, you know, with a search warrant, you know, 15 officers with you just, just overkill to come in and interview myself, my wife, look at a computer and, and take a few things away. And it was, that's where it was. And effectively it was from there. And yeah, not, not a great, not a great thing. I mean, it still has, you know, still has some PTSD with that. You know, there's funnily enough, and again, first person I tell with this is that that I was watching, my wife was watching the Wiggles with my son at the time when they came in the door. And still to this day, I hear that Wiggles theme song and I feel sick. I get goosebumps and I feel like I'm going to shit my pants. And yeah, mate. That's never from... a good knock on the door when it's the police or any uniforms like that, mate. What was it like it? When, when you started going through the system, bro? Like white collar crimes, politician, did you ever have any people trying to put it on you because your politician or what, what was it like your time in prison? Because uh, I never met any politicians when I was in prison. So I'm interested to see what it was like. The good from... thing is, good thing is brother, not a politician, definitely not a politician. I was just one of the bureaucrats, one of the guys, the public servants working for the council. So okay. I wasn't, thank goodness, wasn't a politician. But in saying that is I came from a, an element of white privilege. Now I got in, I got inside. I went to um, the court case was, was bumped up um, into county court um, because of the amounts that were being discussed, and yeah. ended up going straight down, straight down the elevator from the county court to start a uh, a one year a one year sentence before I was eligible for parole. So yeah. I spent spent three weeks, nearly three weeks, in um, the lockup because they didn't have a space for anyone at that point in time. Um, then moved to um, the Melbourne Assessment Prison, um, the MAP. And that was where I got my first experience of, wow, man, man, wow. Um, and I, I had a couple of speeding tickets beforehand, man. That's, that's the extent of my, uh, my criminal history in that space. And went there and 
just just I, I it's speechless. Is you know seeing drug deals done in front of you, seeing you know it's, um you know just 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 amazing amazing things happen. I mean I'm, I'm not telling any of the listeners anything they don't know, but it just it was an eye opener for me. But what it also probably showed me is that the fact is that there's so much mental health challenges and issues for guys in there and lack of literacy and numeracy. And I looked at it and thought, fuck me drunk. And the people, people in the world, as in schools, as in the medical areas, they're failing people horrendously. And that was the first thing I saw. And it wasn't even about me. It was, I was in Victoria, my kids, my wife were in, we were in Perth. Um, so, you know, there was 3000 Ks away and it just became instantly a matter of, I had to work out how I was going to survive brother, because man, I was a, a, a you know, six foot five fucking guy, bald guy that mate, Jesus, I didn't know what anything, I didn't even know what a fucking shard was. I had no idea what ice was. I had no, nothing, no idea of anything. And just to be immersed in it and seeing it every day. And from the first five minutes of being in there. Now, people know what you're in there for. And, you know, I, I got approached by a couple of people straight off the bat about, you know, hey, you know, we hear you're good with numbers. We hear you're good with, you know, stuff. And you've got, you know, this this education and stuff. I'm like, how the fuck do people know that? Yeah, how do people know that? And got approached with some stuff. And, you know, got approached with some things along the line and and obviously knocked it back. And even some of that extended to when we got home. I mean, I got a call from from a, from someone um you know, when I got when I got home and said to me, "Hey, can you go and pick up a parcel for me?" Um, you know, I'll give you I'll give you hundred k to go and pick up a parcel for me. And I was like, "Wow, um, wow, no, no, not that's that's not me. I fucked up once. I'm not going to do it again." And um, so it was, it was challenging. Map was challenging, and then was lucky enough to be a there's a low risk, a low security risk, as you know, first time in white collar, very low white collar offences and was what got sent to Beechworth, which is sort of you know, central, central to Northern Victoria um, prison farm and got there and met some great people. You know, one of the first guys I met was a guy that was doing the back end of a 30 year stint. And he became, uh, he became someone that, that helped me immensely and, and taught me really quickly. Um, you know, the, the, um, the first, the first mistake I made, man, when I got there is in the food line and, um, one of the guys would give me dinner. I said, yeah, thanks champ. Appreciate it. And one of the boys has said to me, he goes, don't call someone a champ, man. He goes, you just called him a fucking child fiddler. I'm like, Oh fuck. I didn't know, you know, and then next minute down the track, you know, it's just things I used to say outside. And then to this, this guy, I'm like, you know, oh, thanks pal. I appreciate it. And he goes, what? He goes, pal. He goes, you just called me a dog. And I said, Oh fuck. I didn't know that. I don't know. I didn't know. So there was a, a baptism of fire for me on language and on everything. And my mate, my mate helped me out with it. Yeah, it's lucky, mate. You know, you can end up in bad situations very quickly in there, mate. Did Did you have any dramas in there, or you're pretty smooth sailing? Um, I, I had a couple. Had a couple of not fantastic ones. Um, I mean, you know yourself when you meet when you go into a space like that. There, there are some people that personalities just naturally clash. Um, you know, there was some. Uh, technically myself and my mate that we became close with shouldn't have ever become friends as a low white collar offender and a, and a, and a high end 30, 30 to 35 year offender. They don't usually mesh mesh, but we hit it off really well. And we had some great conversations about things. And, and I think without having confirmation of it, I think the fact that I was friends with someone who had such a profile in that place is I think that I was almost safe by, safe by association if that makes sense 
yeah. is that I think that if, if I think that if something had happened to me, I think, well, I know my mate would have had a fairly stern word to those guys, and I think that the the, the fear that he, um, the fear that he sort of brought into some people, flowed on. But I, I think the other part too, mate, is that I had the ability to talk, and there were situations I was able to talk myself out of, and. I think the biggest challenge was um, the biggest challenge was being having having I suppose an education was a threat to some of the guys, but also a threat to some of the officers because you were you were questioning their bullshit. You were questioning the the you know some of the reasons they would do something. You know why would they shut the library down? Well, what's the reason for it? Just give us an idea. Oh oh, and and you could see through their bullshit because you were smart enough and you would see it when you were working at council, you would see it with public, you would see it with other staff and counselors or, or through coaching sport. And you'd be able to factually question them on something. And it used mm. to rattle some of the fucking guards feathers bad. And I had to just pull my head in because at the end of the day, it was just <laughs> like, fuck, just, it, it, just some of them were just dumb fucks. And some of them were, were people you wouldn't <clears> give <throat> the steam off your turd to. And it was just a matter of, there were some good ones. Don't get me wrong. There were some good ones there that actually gave a shit about you as a person. And that's both sides of the fence. And there were some very ordinary ones. And mm. still see that today, man. We still see that today when you when you deal with the industries and the, 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 the work that I do. You still see that in staff and also students now. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool, man. I like your story. You know, you've, coming from your background to, you know, having a speeding ticket and then serving a one-year sentence straight away, mate. That's... <laughs> It must have been a, a full spin out for you, bro. Especially if you weren't associating with people, you didn't know anything about it. You didn't know even know Nothing. what a shard was. Fuck. Taking Nothing, man. I didn't even, mate. I couldn't have even. If you actually said to me, Jacob, if we actually met me and beforehand and said, "Hey, can you tell me someone that you know that has spent time?" I couldn't have even. I couldn't have even pointed you to someone that had spent time. Like I had no idea. It was that. I was that white privileged at that point. You know, my wife had a good job. Or at that point, before we had our kids, you know, we were in a good space in a, in a, a really solid region, country country town or regional centre in Victoria. We had a house, we had an investment property. You know, we had some mate wearing a wearing a, a shirt to work every day. Um, you know, and and now, brother, now afterwards is the people I feel more comfortable speaking to, and not the people that I was engaged with beforehand, but the people that know you and saw you and understand that you were at your worst when you're in jail. And yeah. That, they believe that you can become your best you when you come home. Yeah. And like, you know, there, there's no accident between the fact that I can speak to you in this space and other guys would be the same. You know, there's yeah. no accident that you get on the radio and talk to someone that has lived experience and man, they just talk and you get it because you don't have to hide shit when you go to work or you go to you know, other stuff is that people don't get it. They don't, they don't get you and they, they still look at you as if, you know, I had, one, I had a staff member today at work. Oh, I did a Google check on you and saw you've been to jail. Okay. So, so, so tell me about it. Like, tell me some true crime stories. Fuck off. <laughs> fuck off. Do I look like, fuck, do I look like fucking Netflix? Yeah. Said, fuck off. You know, like, please yeah. come and talk to me about wanting to know about how there's no education for guys inside or how the visits are shit or how they get ripped off on their phone credits or how yeah. buying a fucking razor blade costs $24 instead of $4. You know, that's the shit that I want to talk about. I want to fucking talk about, you know, a true crime story of who did what. And mm. it just, it makes me fucking angry. But talking to the guys, dude, 
I don't know why you went in for. I've never asked you and I don't care. Like that's that's me. You're you're a fellow that said you got lived experience. I love you for it because you're owning it and you're turning it around and changing your world. I don't give two fucks what someone's done as long yeah. as they own it. If they've done it and they don't own it and they don't yeah. own it and they make mistakes on it or they keep doing it and doing it and doing it, I'm not going to hate you. I'm not going to hate you for it, brother. But, you know, I love you when you know you can put your hand up and say, yeah, I fucked up. Or, yeah, I have some mental health challenges I need to get looked at. Or, yeah, I have a substance issue. Or, yeah, I had a fucked up childhood or was sexually assaulted or something's happened somewhere. Own it, change the narrative of it, own the narrative on it, and then fucking learn something from it. That's all I can say. Yeah, I agree, mate. And, you know, we've only got a couple more minutes to go. So I just wanted to, I'm obviously going to drop all your links and all that um, in the comment section of the podcast. So, but I just wanted to know what you're doing now. And um, if anyone would like to connect with you, um, how can they do that? And just a little bit about the radio and a little rundown on how we can connect with you. Awesome. Well, my um, my email address is my surname. So ss at westnet.com. And I'll, I'll, anyone that needs my mobile, please give Jacob a, a text and he can he can send it through to you. Um, we uh, do our radio show, which is called Talking Time. Um, and it's on the Inspire Radio Network, which is an online radio platform, but it's now on Spotify. So you can listen to the guys on Spotify, but um, you, know, you can get on and have a look. We run six till eight o'clock Western time, Western Standard Time here. Um, and... We'd love to, we open invite to all your listeners and open invite to anyone who's got lived experience to come on board because we want to hear, get ring, speak to me, tell me your story, tell me how you got through shit and got to become better at what you do, or you're still struggling with shit, or you need some help reaching out to a practitioner. Just tell me and let me know. But also Jacob, and I won't, don't want to forget this is I'm trying to work hard on developing academic skills, writing skills, educational skills of guys that have come home through the eyes of convict criminology. And I know that you've got a group. There's a great guy that's doing a lot of stuff similar to that Chris up with you. And there's a lot of guys that are really keen on doing this. Please hit me up if you're, if you want to write something with me, if we want to do, you know, we want to do some sort of academic piece or some sort of, you know, ethnographic story where we can write stuff together and we can, we can add your story to some research. Like I'm happy to do that. We've got some good journals that will take our stuff all the time. And hit me up. Please hit me up. I'm, I'm here for everyone to try and help out where I can. Yeah, cool, brother. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I know you're a busy man. You started back working and all that this week. So thanks for squeezing me in. Mate, it's uh, it's, it's all good, brother. Anytime, and man, here for you and anyone that's listening and wants to reach out. But again, hand on heart to you, brother, for the work you're doing and, and the effort you're putting in and the voices you're giving people. It is, I'm not a religious man, but it's God sent. And, and thank you very much from everyone for what you do. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Much love, man. Have a good night. I would like to thank everyone who is following Survivor Stories for being a part of our community. If you would like to follow our journey on social media, we are on Facebook and Instagram at About Time for Justice, which is spelled about A B O. U-T, time, T-I-M-E, for, F-O-R, justice, J-U-S-T-I-C-E, there is no spaces, that is all one word. We also have Twitter, but unfortunately we could not get the same name. 
Our handle is about time for ju1. We also have a website abouttimeforjustice.com. We also encourage all of our listeners to jump on to our closed off Facebook prison support group which is called Beating the System. You can find all the links in this podcast in the details section below. We would love to hear your story. If you would like to be a guest on our show, please hit me up. If you found any value from this podcast, I would ask you to pay a small fee. And of course, that is only if you found value. We do not charge or run any ads at the moment. I ask if you could please subscribe, leave a review and to tell one friend about our show.